fall of 1973 when an Israeli lieutenant, Zvi Greengold, was at home on his kibbutz in the Galilee celebrating the Jewish High Holy Days. He was with his family. Suddenly, he heard an IDF fighter jet fly overhead. He knew that something was wrong, for no missions were scheduled during the Holy Days. He immediately went to his army radio, and he discovered that his beloved Israel was under a coordinated attack. Egyptian troops had crossed the Suez Canal and were rolling into the Sinai, while the Syrians were pouring into the Golan Heights. Zvika, as he was called or would be called, quickly put on his uniform. He hitchhiked to the army headquarters in the Golan Heights. When he arrived, he discovered that the situation was grim. The Israelis had been caught totally off guard. A mere 188 tanks were trying to hold the high ground above the Sea of Galilee against 2,000 Syrian tanks. Zvika took two broken down Syrian tanks, Centurion tanks is what they were called, and he radioed to the Israeli troops on the front line that the Swika force was on the way. Just two tanks. Soon he came under heavy fire and he had to send his support tank back for repairs. Well, to survive, Zvika left the main road and he began maneuvering across the rugged, hilly countryside. And all through that night, Zvika would suddenly appear behind a knoll. He would fire on the Syrians and then he would disappear. He, he led this guerrilla-type tank warfare. Svi Gringold's lone tank was so effective that the Syrians thought they were fighting an entire tank brigade. His heroism gave courage to the outnumbered Israeli forces and helped them push back the enemy and win the Yom Kippur War. And the Zwicka force was just one example of Israeli troops performing unprecedented feats on the battlefield that day. Many observers believe the Israelis were supernaturally empowered, that God was on their side. Their heroism on Yom Kippur was a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 8, the chapter we studied last week, which tells us the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. Even the weakest, even the most feeble, will fight like a brave warrior, even like King David. And this will also be the case at the final battle when God destroys the nations of the world who come against Jerusalem. You remember too in Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10, the prophet tells us that in the midst of this final battle, the Jews will realize that they've made a terrible mistake. Their enemies will be led by a man that they had trusted to save them, a man who proved to be a false messiah, an antichrist. And as they pray to the Lord to help them, to deliver them, they'll recognize their true Messiah, Jesus Christ. God tells us in verse 10, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And I ask you, when was God pierced? Only one occasion. 
on the cross of Jesus Christ. God became flesh to die in our place. He was wounded so that we can be healed. You know, go to Israel today and you'll find a nation who knows how to weep and mourn and grieve. In fact, their national symbol is a stack of old stones they call the Wailing Wall. Jews come to that wall to grieve over the injustices that have been done to them. The problem is is that they ignore their own sins that cause their suffering. You know, the most heartbreaking verse in the New Testament is John 1, verse 11. There we read, He, that is God in the flesh, Jesus, came to His own, the Jews, and His own did not receive Him. You remember they cried out, May His blood be upon our hands and upon our children. In the days prior to 70 A.D. and the destruction of the Second Temple, there was a custom on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a goat, they called it the scapegoat, was brought into the temple, and over the head of this goat, the priest would pronounce the sins of the nation. The goat was then released out into the desert as a symbol of the removal of the people's sins. A red ribbon was attached to the goat, And it was said that when that ribbon turned white, the people knew that their sins had been forgiven, that God had pardoned them. There is a passage in the Babylonian Talmud, a collection of rabbinical teachings, that states this. Forty years before the second temple was destroyed, the red wool did not become white. And what happened 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple? I'll tell you what happened. The Jews rejected Jesus. You see, this was the only unpardonable sin. Today, this is the only unpardonable sin. God will blot out anything and everything except the rejection of his only son. And for the last 1,900 years, the Jews have carried the weight of this sin on their shoulders. They have suffered God's judgment as a result. And yet the day will come, according to Zechariah 12, verse 10, when they'll realize their colossal mistake. They'll look on him whom they have pierced, and they'll mourn for Jesus as an only son. The Jews will embrace Jesus as their Messiah, and in turn, he will come and deliver them and be their king for a thousand years. In the end, all Jews will be a Jew for Jesus. Which brings us now to chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. Now, whenever I paint a wall, I'm always tempted with a shortcut. I'm always tempted to just sort of brush on a new coat of paint over the old paint. And yet we all know that a wall first needs to be sanded down. All that old paint needs to be scraped off. You prime before you paint. And this is what has to occur in a person's heart. Rather than just brush over the old life, repentance has to come before forgiveness. I have to confess my sin. I have to see what I've done from God's perspective. I have to own my old habits which have been displeasing to God. And I need to provide God the willingness to change. All this is the act of repentance. See, repentance is like the spiritual primer. It allows my heart to then absorb 
the new coat of forgiveness that God wants to paint onto my life. When we grieve over what we've done, it's then that a fountain of cleansing opens us up to us. You know, we're told in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's nothing more wonderful than to be cleansed of our sins. And this is what all Israel will experience one day after they've grieved and mourned over what they did to Jesus. You know, today at the Wailing Wall, I've been there many times, there is a fountain where you actually wash your hands before you approach the wall. The Jews cleanse themselves so that they can mourn and grieve and wail, but they have it backwards. God's cleansing comes after the mourning, after the grieving over our sins, after heartfelt repentance. That's when God comes and opens up a fountain of cleansing for us. And where is this fountain that Zechariah mentions, this fountain of cleansing? We find it in John chapter 19, verse 34. For as Jesus hung upon the cross, John tells us, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Later in that same passage, verses 36 and 37, John adds this, For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. They shall look on him whom they pierced. He references Zechariah. A cleansing fountain opened up from Jesus' side. And now anyone interested in God's forgiveness must repent of their sin and come to Jesus to be cleansed. I love William Cowper's famous hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Redeeming love will one day be the theme of the Jews who recognize Jesus as the fountain of their cleansing. And then we're told in verse 2, It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Notice God's cleansing in Israel will be on display in two ways. First, is the elimination of idolatry, and second is a zero tolerance for false prophets. Notice the expression, cutting off the names of the idols. Cutting off their names, what does that mean? Well, it was the equivalent of their complete destruction, their complete elimination. For not just the idol itself was cut off, but the names of the idols. In other words, its reputation, even its memory, shall be cut off and destroyed. And I think this is indicative of God's cleansing power in our lives. He not only forgives us of our sin, but he takes away the shame that it caused. Even its painful and lasting memories. You know, it's amazing to me that after you bask in God's grace for several years, that you can actually forget sin's aftertaste. You can actually forget what it was even like. You no longer remember your sins. He says, it shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begat him will say to him, you shall not live. 
because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. This is pretty heavy. He's saying here that in the kingdom age, when Jesus reigns, love of God's word, respect of God's name will transcend family loyalties. In other words, God will be more important than a person's own kid so that a parent will shut the mouth of a child who lies and says false prophecies and misrepresents God. You remember Numbers chapter 25, Israel had sinned with the Midianites. The Hebrew husbands had committed adultery and idolatry with the Midianite women. Their sin was open. Their sin was brazen. And as a result, God brought a plague on his people. In fact, one of the rebels was so brazen that he flaunted his adulterous date right there in front of Moses. He brought this woman to the door of the tabernacle. That's when one of the priests, a man named Phineas, he had all he could take of this blasphemy. He grabbed a javelin, he followed the couple into their tent, and he stabbed them through like a shish kebab. It was a, the wake-up call that Israel needed. God ended the plague. You know, this episode was a lesson in the danger of tolerance. No one was willing to confront the idolater until Phineas grabbed the lance. Everyone was tolerant of their sin. And I think this is a lesson for us. Today, the one value that modern society prizes highest is what? It's tolerance. Our pluralistic culture tolerates anything and everything except biblical orthodoxy. In the world, we should stand for the truth, even though we have to at times tolerate perversions around us, but not so in the church. In God's camp, we should insist on truth and faithfulness. It's hard to have a zero-tolerance attitude in a total-tolerance world. And yet the truth can't be compromised. Phineas cleaned house with a spear. Our weapon is not a literal spear. It's not a, it's, it's not a literal lance, but it's sharper. Our weapon is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we need to unsheath it whenever idolatry or immorality wants to seep into God's house. And then verse 4 tells us, And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. Again, one of the uh, displays of God's cleansing is going to be the elimination of false prophets. Here he's talking about uh, the false prophet who wears a coarse hair to deceive. The reference is to the prophet Elijah. Remember, Elijah wore a mantle or a robe made of coarse camel skin. And just before he was taken to heaven, he passed his mantle on to his successor, Elisha. A camel skin coat became a symbol of God's prophet. That coat was sort of his business card. It's how you recognized a prophet. In fact, tradition says that one of the reasons the Jews went out from Jerusalem to the Jordan River to see John the Baptist was that he came wearing the mantle of Elijah. Well, apparently the false prophets in Zechariah's day feigned a prophet's authority by wearing the official uniform. They would wear the robe. They would dress the part. 
and yet still speak lies and false prophecies. But when Jesus returns, this is going to stop. The false prophets will be afraid to continue this ruse. This kind of thing will no longer be tolerated. But he will say, I am no prophet. I am a farmer, for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. In other words, the presence of Jesus on earth will suppress the claims of the false prophets. They'll admit that they're farmers, not prophets. Folks will no longer be something that they're not. And one will say to him, what are those wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. According to Deuteronomy 13 verse 10, the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. The penalty for a false prophet was stoning. When a person was stoned, they would put their arms up over their face to deflect the stones that were being thrown at them. They put their arms up for protection. This meant that the false prophet would have scars on his arms, as mentioned here. Here the false prophet says that he was wounded in the house of his friends. This verse is often viewed as prophetic of Jesus, that he was wounded after being sentenced by the Jews. One day, future Jews will see Jesus' scars, and they'll ask him, where did you get them? And our Lord will respond, in the house of my friends. Though verse 6 might typify Jesus, realize it actually speaks of the false prophet, not the true prophet, not Jesus, but the false prophet. It's verse 7, not verse 6, that prophesies of our Lord Jesus. It says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Notice the Lord of hosts speaks of the man who is God's companion. In the 1950s, the New York Yankees, they dominated professional baseball. The Bronx Bombers, they had this lineup of splashy superstars, Joe DiMaggio and Phil Rizzuto and Mickey Mantle. But the workhorse on the team was an unlikely star, a short, squatty, awkward-looking little catcher, but he was tough as nails. His name was Yogi Berra. Well, the Yankee manager, Casey Stingle, was once approached by a reporter at a restaurant. This reporter asked him the secret of his amazing success. Casey Stingle responded, I never start a game without my man. Well, at first the reporter didn't know who he was talking about, but after some thought, he realized that Stingle's man was Yogi Berra. Berra was like a coach on the field. He was an extension of his manager. In case he never entered a game without Berra, either catching or at first base or in left field, Yogi Berra was the heart and soul of the New York Yankees. And here I love it. The Lord of hosts speaks of his man. He calls him the man who is my companion. The Hebrew word companion means peer or equal, a close associate. Who could be God's peer? Who would be God's equal? None other than our Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. God never starts a game without Jesus somewhere in the lineup. The Son of God has always and will always be involved in all that the Father does. Jesus is the heart and soul of God's plan. Jesus is the man. And yet verse 7 identifies a strange role for God's man. 
God's man is his equal. He is the shepherd of his people. And yet, here we're told that he'll be struck like a false prophet. Here God gives the command himself, strike the shepherd. You you remember Isaiah chapter 53. It too says of God's man, the Messiah, it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isn't that such a strange thought? That it pleased God to bruise his own son? How can that be? That it pleased God to strike his main man, the shepherd. Why would God do such a thing? He did such a thing in order to save you and me. And we could ponder that truth for a million years and never fully appreciate the love it shows that God has for us, that God has for sinners like us. Whereas we were the ones that should have been struck, it pleased God to bruise his own son so that he could forgive us. You remember in John chapter 10, shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. He does a whole chapter there on the good shepherd. Even more amazing, on that fateful night, Jesus had been meditating on this passage in Zechariah just before the crucifixion. In Matthew 26, verse 31, Jesus explains to his disciples that they will deny him and abandon him. And he says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. Why? For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Where did Jesus get that? He quotes from Zechariah. And it wasn't just the disciples that were scattered. The death of God's shepherd that night caused all of Israel to be scattered all over the earth for the last 1,900 years. Well, verse 8 tells us, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. God's judgment of Israel began with their scattering, but it will culminate with their slaughter. Several times in Jewish history, we've come close to the fulfillment of this prophecy. During the Roman invasion of 70 AD, hundreds of thousands of Jews fell to the Romans At the end of the Middle Ages, countless Jewish purges had reduced the population of world Jewry down to around one million. Hitler systematically exterminated six million Jews, at the time about a third of the world's total Jewish population. And yet despite these horrors, the the worst Holocaust is yet to come. In Revelation 12, we're told that at the midpoint of the great tribulation, Satan will be kicked out of heaven, and he'll be mad. He'll be mad at God, and he'll want to retaliate. And how do you retaliate against somebody you're mad at? Well, the worst thing you can do is pick on their kids. And that's what Satan will do. Once kicked out of heaven, he'll turn his attention, and he'll attack the Jews. And the armies of the Antichrist will pour into the land of Israel like a flood. Millions of Jews will be slaughtered. Today, the world's Jewish population is 14.4 million people. 6.3 million Jews live in Israel. Here we're told that two-thirds will be wiped out, will be cut off. Imagine if this future Holocaust occurred today, 9.6 million Jews would perish. That's 3.3 million more than Hitler killed in his Holocaust. It will be devastating. 
Verse 9 tells us what happens to the third of world Jewry that ends up saved. I will bring the one-third through the fire. will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Again, in the end, every Jew will be a Jew for Jesus. The final seven years of God's judgment, this period of severe judgment that we call the Great Tribulation, it has a twofold purpose. Don't forget it. One is to punish the world, but the other is to purify the Jews. And this is what happens through their sufferings. They'll come through the fire as pure gold. And it's through these horrible sufferings that God will cause the Jews to refocus. They'll turn from Antichrist and they'll worship Jesus Christ. Now chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Whenever my dad taught fifth grade boys in our old church back a million years ago, he'd always come into the fifth grade class and get the fifth grade boys. Fifth grade boys aren't always known for their attentiveness in Sunday school. And he would say, all right, boys, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to do, do it now. Whatever you want to say. Anybody got anything to say? Say it now. Just say it now. And he would just keep his mouth shut, and people would talk and say this and that, and laugh and this and that. Usually the boys didn't say much when they were given the opportunity to say something. And so he would, he would finally say, okay, I've given you an opportunity to say what you wanted to say. Now I want you to sit there and shut up and listen to me, and now I'm going to tell you what I want to say. Did you know this is God's strategy with all of mankind? It is. Today's the day of man. God is allowing us to have our say. He's allowing us to get our way. But trust me, the day of the Lord is coming when God is going to shut up mankind. God is going to have his say. God is going to have his way. Never forget this. When you argue with a skeptic or when you debate an atheist, always remember that God will end up with the last word. That in the end, the day of the Lord is coming. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. In chapter 12, Zechariah told us that God will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all for all peoples. In other words, everyone who tries to heave it away will be cut by it. Jerusalem will be a stumbling stone for the nations. And here we're told that the armies of all the nations of the world, this global coalition, will coordinate an invasion of Jerusalem. These armies will be counting their spoils. They'll be licking their chops. They'll be taking inventory of their treasures. When suddenly, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Oh, what a moment that will the armies of this earth will rally against Jerusalem when suddenly Jesus Christ himself will split the eastern sky. Our Lord Jesus will intervene. He'll fight on behalf of Jerusalem and on behalf of Israel. 2 Thessalonians talks about the return of Jesus at his second coming. Paul says that Jesus will be revealed from heaven, and I quote, 
in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of this Antichrist who attacks Jerusalem, Paul writes, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Man, when Jesus fights the nations, it won't be much of a contest because he'll consume them with one breath of his mouth. Talk about bad breath, buddy. That's some bad news breath. With one breath of his mouth, he'll consume them. With the brightness, with one shimmer of his brightness, he'll melt them away. He'll incinerate them. Won't be much of a contest. And in that day, his feet, his feet, those same feet that he allowed the Roman soldiers to drive nails into those feet, those same feet that he gave as a sacrifice for you and me will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Whenever I go there, whenever I stand on the Temple Mount, I look back toward the, the Mount of Olives. This is what I envision in my mind. Jesus Christ with his nail-scarred feet, put, putting those feet down on the top of the Mount of Olives and that mountain splitting in two. Jesus coming back to fight for his people and to deliver Jerusalem. What a picture. Now recall after his first visit to earth, Jesus departed from heaven. And you remember where he, where he launched back to heaven from? You remember where he lifted off? It was on the top of the Mount of Olives. We're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 10, As the disciples looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, the very spot where he lifts off is where later he's going to touch down. That's what the angels told the disciples. Jesus ascended back to heaven from the top of the Mount of Olives. And it's from there that Zechariah tells us the living Lord is going to return. He's going to set his foot down on top of the mountain east of Jerusalem. And it's going to split in two, radically altering the topography of today's Jerusalem. Have you ever wondered what shoe size Jesus wears? You haven't? You ever wonder what sandal size Jesus wears? No one knows. But boy, when he returns, when God's main man, when his man puts his foot down, he's going to really put his foot down. The Mount of Olives is going to crumble under the weight of Jesus' big toe. As soon as he plants his sandal, on the mountain, it's going to split in two from east to west. It's interesting that before the Six-Day War in 1967, uh, the country of Jordan decided to build a hotel on the Mount of Olives. They were going to build it directly across from the East Gate. But when they did their seismic studies, they discovered a fault running through the Mount of Olives from east to west. Now, a major fault runs north to south down the Jordan Rift. But the geologists discovered a hairline fault running east to west 
through the Mount of Olives. They did build their hotel, but not according to the original plan. They had to move it further south. They had to move it off the fault line, and they had to move it further south. Today, this Arab hotel, the Seven Arches, sits on the Mount of Olives, but its construction proved that this mountain's geology is unstable. Guess what? It's awaiting the pressure of one foot, the foot of Jesus, and then it's going to split wide open. Then you shall flee through the mount, my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. This seismic upheaval, this earthquake, will create a valley, an unexpected valley in the mountain that will allow an escape route for the Jews. And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Some kind of cataclysmic event is going to cause great confusion. Perhaps the earth will get knocked off its axis. The sun gets blacked out in the daytime and shines only at night. Or it could be an eclipse. Or it could be an explosion of debris that creates a cloud and blocks out the sun for a time. And in that day, it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. This is truly amazing. Half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter, it shall occur. This is the river that we saw back in Ezekiel chapter 47. You remember the river that bubbled up next to the altar in the temple, in the millennial temple when Jesus returns? The water bubbled up in the temple. Here we're told that it's going to flow from Jerusalem both eastward and westward. It's going to form an inland waterway connecting the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. How amazing will that be? The port of Jerusalem. Sounds strange to say, doesn't it? The port of Jerusalem. But that's the city's destiny. This river will connect Jerusalem westward with the Mediterranean and eastward with the Dead Sea and will cause a beautiful waterway to open up in Israel. And then verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Isn't that what we waited on? Isn't that what we've longed for? The Lord, thy king, isn't that what we pray today? The Lord told us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. The day is finally here. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name one. Perhaps it's by this river that flows from the altar next to the, to the or flows uh, from the temple next to the altar Perhaps it's by this future river that Jesus will be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There, there is a Jewish book. It's called the Mishnah Torah, and it states that all the heirs of David were anointed king next to a stream. Apparently, running water was a symbol of the promise that God had made to David that he would never be without a descendant sitting upon this throne. Like a continual flowing river, his kingdom would never end. Remember as the angel said to Mary, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
It's interesting here, he announces the Lord as king over all the earth. After he mentions the river, perhaps the Lord will be anointed the king next to the river. While we're on the subject of the Messiah's crowning, his coronation, the king in Israel was always anointed with a special oil. It came from the sap of the persimmon or the balsam tree. Ancient documents testify that when they put the oil into the water, it turned into a milky white solution. When the Romans invaded Israel in 70 AD, we're told by Josephus that the Jews destroyed the remaining balsam groves. The Jewish rabbis thought that this anointing oil no longer existed. That is until 1987. Two archaeologists, Gary Collette and Nathan Myers, they were digging around in the Qumran area down near the Dead Sea, and they found a clay flask. It was in a cave. It was actually buried three feet under the ground. It was in a small little container, and they found an oil in this flask. Tests confirmed that it was bottled around the time of Jesus, and when mixed with water, it turned into a milky white solution. They believe that this is the anointing oil that was used to coronate the king. Today, this, the remainder of this oil has been turned over to Israel's chief rabbis who plan to use it to anoint the Messiah when he returns. It's interesting, God has already prepared the anointing oil for his son's coronation. Verse 10. And all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Haniel to the king's wine presses. Now the biblical descriptions of the city of Jerusalem during the thousand-year reign of Christ and the huge crowds that it'll have to accommodate require a city much, much larger than the current old city of Jerusalem. Apparently, this earthquake that's going to accompany the return of Jesus is going to help to expand Jerusalem's dimensions. This quake is going to create a plain or a plateau, we're told, from Geba, which was six miles northeast of Jerusalem, to Rimon, which was 33 miles southwest of Jerusalem. In other words, this city is going to be enlarged. It's going to be much, much bigger. Verse 11, the people shall dwell in it and no longer Shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. When Jesus returns to Jerusalem, the city will finally live up to its name, to the meaning of its name, the city of peace. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. The nations that attack Jerusalem will be punished in three ways. With a plague with a panic, and with a plunder. And he talks about all three in the next few verses. First, he mentions a plague. Their flesh shall be, I'm sorry, their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. In other words, all of their soft tissue will incinerate and deteriorate and dissolve on the spot. 
In the book Hiroshima, author John Hersey describes the aftermath of the atomic bomb that was dropped on the Japanese island. The people who weren't killed in the initial blast died far more horrible deaths as a result of the radiation. Hersey writes this, and notice how similar it is to Zechariah's description. He writes, Faces were wholly burned. Eye sockets were hollow. Fluid from melted eyes ran down cheeks. Mouths were mere swollen, pus-covered wounds. The severe human suffering was nauseating. I, I was going to show some pictures, but I decided not to. Yeah, you're welcome. It's interesting, though, the similarities between Zechariah and John Hershey's descriptions. It's possible, if not probable in my mind, that Zechariah is here describing the radiation released from a future nuclear bomb. Now, we know for many, many years now, Israel has possessed nuclear capabilities. We also know that they've warned that they'll use their weapons as sufficiently threatened. There's little doubt in my mind that Israel won't hesitate to use nuclear weapons if their survival is ever at stake. You know, in the past, Israel was said to have a Masada mentality. You know, like the Jews who fled to Masada in the wake of the Roman invasion of Jerusalem, they vowed never to surrender, and that was kind of the Jews' rallying cry, we'll never surrender. Instead, they committed suicide on the mountain, but we'll never surrender. The Masada mentality. Today, though, that mentality in Israel has shifted. Today, they talk about the Samson mentality. You remember how Samson died? He pulled down the pillars of the pagan temple, and he took the Philistines with him. The Philistines died with him. And today, the Samson mentality is what rules in Israel. If the Israelis think that they're going to be wiped out, they're going to take a few nations with them. I think that's what we see here in this passage. A plague is going to come upon those nations that come against Jerusalem. But along with the plague, God will also bring a panic on the people who attack Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. In other words, God will confuse the attacking armies. They'll turn on each other. Many of their troops will die from friendly fire. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. Israel will divide the plunder from the nations surrounding her when God finishes off those who attack Jerusalem. All the oil revenues, all the oil wealth that exists in the Middle East will eventually belong to Jerusalem, to the Jews. The last few verses here in Zechariah describe what life will be like when Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth. Jesus will rule the world from his temple in Jerusalem. And in verse 16 we're told, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now recall, one-third of the Jews will survive this tumultuous time called the Great Tribulation. Apparently, there will also be Gentile survivors as well. Along with these Jews, people from the nations 
who also repented and trust in Jesus, they too will come together. All these survivors will begin to repopulate the planet that Jesus now rules over. And from the nations that attack Jerusalem, there will now be a people who will come up to Jerusalem to worship. They'll bow before God's man, God's main man, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And notice they'll come annually in the fall of the year for the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. Now this is the week every year that the Jews, Jewish families, they make like a little makeshift hut in their backyard under the stars. And they sort of live in the hut, at least dine in the hut for at least a week in order to remember their wanderings in the wilderness. During the 40 years they were in the wilderness and how God faithfully provided for them food to eat and water to drink, even clothes to wear. You remember their shoes didn't wear out. And they, and they use this time, the Feast of Tabernacles, every year to remember God's provision for them during that time. In the millennium, they will remember their wanderings for all of 2,000 years. And they'll also celebrate God's faithfulness. It's interesting that the Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, has always been the one feast where Gentiles were invited to join the Jews in their celebration. And perhaps this is why this is anticipatory of the role that the Gentiles will play in the future kingdom. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. Apparently, an annual pilgrimage to worship the king in Jerusalem will become mandatory. And the communities that neglect to come to Jerusalem for the official feast will be punished with a drought. Now, I think this should teach us a lesson. This is instructive for us in the lives that we live today. It's interesting to me that the neglect of worship is considered by the king to be a punishable offense. I'm not sure any of us truly understand the importance that God places on our corporate worship. Most Christians today, they come to church when they don't have a more pressing priority. When your junior doesn't have a ball game or when it's too rainy to go to the lake, oh, well, let's go to church today. <laughs> Do you know that in the kingdom age, God is going to punish people who neglect the appointed times of worship? Today, as the church, we need to prioritize our public worship. Don't take it trivially. Verse 18. And if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now the question arises, why does God single out Egypt as an example of a nation that doesn't observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is about God's deliverance of His people, Israel, from where? From Egypt. I suppose if anyone has a reason not to celebrate Israel's exodus from Egypt, it would be an Egyptian. Israel's victory was Egypt's defeat. And yet even the Egyptians should put the praise of God before their national interests. We should put the praise of God before any of our own selfish interests. And in that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bales of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house 
shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. You know, as we mentioned, today's chief value, in our society today, the chief value is tolerance. Whereas in the kingdom age, when Jesus rules, the chief value will be holiness. Everything will be dedicated to the Lord. Holiness will be written everywhere. Go to the stables and the bells on the horses will read holiness. They'll be inscribed with holiness to the Lord. Go to the temple and examine the vessels, and you'll find the same inscription, holiness to the Lord. Gone will be the distinctions between secular and sacred. Holy and profane. There'll be no distinctions like that. There will be no no secular and sacred. Everything will be sacred. That should be the case today. All of our lives should belong to the Lord. All of our lives should be dedicated to Him. Everything should be dedicated and set apart or made holy to the Lord. Is this true of your life? Or do you live one life for God and another life for yourself? Have you kind of divided things up in your mind? Well, this is for God and this is for me. Hey, that's not the attitude we need. Even today, if, we, if King Jesus is our king, if we're living in his kingdom today, holiness to the Lord should govern all that we do. We should dedicate everything to him. All of our lives should be viewed in light of how it pleases our Lord Jesus. And in that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now, in Zechariah's day, the term Canaanite was synonymous with idolater, And when Jesus reigns, there will be no such thing as an idolater or as an atheist or even an agnostic. In that day, no one will question the existence and the power of our God. Let me close the book of Zechariah with a question. The motto of this coming kingdom is holiness to the Lord. And i got to ask you, is that your motto? May we all desire to live holy lives. Father, thank you.